Well, if you would, uh, you should have a set of notes. Hopefully there's enough set of notes. Uh, do we have enough? I hope. Uh, uh, we charge after today, so hopefully you have them. We're dealing with a, a huge topic, and as I prefaced our last time together on these difficult questions we're asking, uh, be patient with us. Uh, some of you have studied this great in depth. You've read, uh, you know, William Lane Craig's Mill Knowledge, and you know all of that. For some of us, this is so bizarre to be talking about these things. You know, this is the first time you've even maybe heard of sovereignty. So uh, volumes have been written on this topic. And so in 40 minutes, uh, it may be a gross overview, and for that I apologize. But uh, my desire is at least have us think through some of the issues that pertain to these difficult issues. The, the sovereignty of God, it's defined there in that opening paragraph by Grudem. He states, God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing. And then secondly, he co cooperates with created things in every action. And three, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. In other words, he's not an old man who wound a clock. God is intimately involved with his created order. When you state that, it creates three issues, though, or three areas where immediately questions rise. Number one is about human will. If that's true, then are we just robots? If God has dictated everything that is to happen, then really do we have a choice? And people talk about free will, and, and that the sovereignty of God can, would seem to suggest we, we don't have it. Secondly, if God is so sovereign, why is there evil, which we will address, all right? Uh, and third uh, is the whole issue of God's sovereignty. Where does that extend? Uh, there was a movement back in the 90s, it's still popular, called the openness concept, and that is that they argue that God does not know what human beings will decide or do. And so thus God sits back and he waits and then he maneuvers accordingly. And so these, uh, we're going to look at some of this today again. Uh, this is just kind of a, hopefully I'm whetting your appetite to explore this further. And at the end of the notes, I've given you uh, some areas you could pursue further in reading, etc. I want to look at three questions that arise after this, under the sovereignty of God that's, that's usually raised. The first of these is, if God is sovereign, then does not this deny the reality of our ability to make choices and bring about results? In other words, if God is sovereign, then, then we're just robots, right? You, you often hear that. My response, and I'm going to give you biblical support for this, is while God does cause all things to happen, he operates in such a manner, as you see there in your notes, that he upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices which I would argue are real, and they bear eternal implications. Now let me give you support for this and look at this. And this isn't just a theological exercise. If that's all we do today, then, then I've missed the mark. I want you to see the ramifications of this as we move along as well. And what does that mean to me uh, as a follower of Jesus? I've given you four bullet points, three I want to highlight. The first of these is there resides undoubtedly a mystery between an infinite God and finite beings, isn't it? Uh, to try to, in fact, the, the fourth bullet point highlights this as well. D.A. Carson wrote a whole book on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He says there, there's a mystery, there's a tension here. 
and, and trying to explain God from a human perspective, we're going to fall short. And that, I think that's one of the reasons why Calvinism and Arminianism has never resolved matters, because they're human design systems to try to explain God. And at the end of the day, they're going to be bankrupt because we are finite, God is infinite. And, and so we've got to remember that. But what does Scripture teach us? Second bullet point. It, it clearly tells us that God is intimately involved with His creation, isn't He? I've given you several examples from the text of Scripture. He, he knew our lives prior to birth. Remember Psalm 139? In fact, turn there and just look at a couple texts. Psalm 139. It's a familiar passage. It's what Mother Teresa read to Bill Clinton when she was calling for uh, the removal of abortion. Uh, Psalm 139. Not sure he knew what to do with that, but anyway. Psalm 139. Uh, look at verse 16 here. It says, Your eyes saw me when I was inside the womb, all the days ordained for me. All right, so it was intimately involved even before we were born. Other examples I give in your notes there, he knows our daily needs, our daily activities, our talents, abilities, and even our decision-making process. God is intimately involved. The text is clear about that, isn't it? At the same time, Scripture is clear, we have responsibility for actions. This is that tension, isn't it, that, that's going on in the text, or mystery is maybe a better term, we are still responsible for our actions. Turn, turn to James chapter 4. We studied the book of James many eons ago. James chapter 4, verse 2. He says, You desire, you do not have. You murder and envy, you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And that's reiterated in John 16. You ask and you will receive. So it seems to suggest that we, have an, we do have uh, a role in this process, doesn't it? Uh, furthermore, not only do we have oops, responsibility for our actions, if I can go back to the screen, uh, our actions, our choices have eternal uh, consequences. We are responsible. These actions have real results and can change the course of events. You say, well, how can that be if God is sovereign and already knows all things? Remember, he's outside of time as well. And so you, you've got, uh, again, we're trying to explain an infinite being who, who he has all things con in control. He's intimately involved, while at the same time, we, we have the... Uh, we have choices that we make, and that has consequences. All right, so the two, the two go in tandem. There is a tension here, and again, that's what Carson is highlighting, which is at that last bullet point, the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility contains enough ambiguity to permit the conclusion that is not necessarily logically contradictory. And I think he's right on that. There is a tension, and that human causation does occur. Questions on this? It's not that we're robots. The scripture never teaches that. that but it also teaches that God is sovereign. <laughs> the two go hand in hand. You're thinking, well, you didn't answer my question. No, the, there isn't a concrete answer. That's what Carson concludes in his whole book. There is a tension here. God is sovereign, yet we have free will. All right? 
Well, let me, let me take this to another step. And this is the second question there in your notes then as we look at this. If God is sovereign, then why does Scripture seem to indicate that he's unaware of human events? This is where Clark Pinnock and others with the openness of God concept is saying, well, listen, you know, it, it tells us, for instance, God repents. He changed his mind. He was going to destroy the Israelites. The next minute, he doesn't want to destroy them. You know, how do you, what do you do with that? It seems that there is the whole thing with Nineveh, with Jonah, right? He said he's going to wipe them out. Next thing, he's, he's, he doesn't wipe them out. You know, let me, I want to, don't interrupt. <laughs> Thank you. Not yet. Let me set my case. No, no. Eugene, let me finish, all right? Response. God does not change his purpose, his will, his knowledge, or wisdom, but one who does interact with his creation. In fact, as I mentioned there in your bottom of the notes, is people in the experiences of their lives as they unfold in time. Let me give you a, a case in point. Turn to Genesis 22. This is a, a text that openness, uh, those who hold the openness of God will argue. Genesis 22. If you remember, this is the binding of Isaac. Sometimes we refer to it as the sacrifice of Isaac, but he doesn't sacrifice him. And the Jews, uh, Jewish uh, interpretation would be that, no, it's the binding of Isaac. Remember, Abraham takes Isaac. He's told to sacrifice him. At least the Lord tells him to do so. And in verse 12, <clears throat> Abraham, Abraham, is, Abraham has the knife in hand. It tells us in verse 10. And in verse 11, the Lord's angel calls to him, Abraham, here am I. He answered, do not harm the boy. Now look what the text says. Do not do anything to him, for now I know you fear God. And so Clark Pinnock and others will argue there, there's a case in point where God did not know exactly what Abraham was going to do until that point. So God does not know the, the end game. And, and so what do you do with that text? Well, let me give you uh, some things to look at here as we look at this. And uh, Bruce Ware's book, God's Lesser Glory, is excellent. It was written a few years ago, uh, and I have it there in, on page three, but it, it's dynamite. But let me give you uh, some response to this, because this fits with the first one. It, if we truly have choice and God is truly sovereign, then what do you do with these texts? which seem to suggest God isn't fully sovereign in the sense that he doesn't know all things. Number one, God highlights God's prior knowledge to present events. You realize in Genesis 22, Abraham's faith has already been established before he even picked up the knife. Look at verse 5. Look at the text. Genesis 5, 22.5. So he said, Abram said to his servants, you stay here we will worship, and then what? Return. Look at verse 8. And of course, Isaac's saying, hey, where's the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. There it is. Now, turn to, let's, let's do, um, turn to Romans, if you would. I want you to see this. What I'm going to argue is that Abraham's faith was already established. And the idea that God now knows, God already knew it. It, it was just accentuating the emphasis there that now it's, it's further established. It says in 4.18, Romans 4, starting in verse 18, 
Against hope, Abraham believed in hope with the result that he became the father of many. Without being weak in faith, he considered his own body dead in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief about the promise. Abraham already established faith way before he picked up the knife with Isaac. So, as uh, scholars will argue, like uh, Wayne Grudem, Bruce Ware, and that is that God is already, he already knows what's going to transpire. And so scripture, while it's, it, it highlights the present idea that he now knows, he already knew this. It's just highlighting it. And it fits with the second point here in that scripture will often use anthropomorphic terminology. And what in the world does that mean? It's, I, I even define it there in your notes, to understand in common human ways of speaking that should be taken in non-literalistic manner. In other words, remember, uh, Scripture talks about God's nostrils smelling the, the stench. Uh, God does not have nostrils, per se, but it, it's describing Him in human form. And that's often what in Hebrew is being done, such as with Abraham uh, is, is being argued. It, it's a way to describe what God is doing. But it's not that he all of a sudden knew that Abraham had faith. Abraham had established his faith long before he picked up that knife. And, and third, an in, in argument here is, uh, is that this idea that God repents, which is often used by Clark Pennock, you know, God repents that he did certain things such as in Exodus 32, remember that? Aaron has built a golden calf and God says, that's it, I'm done. I'm wiping them out and Moses intercedes. Well, that was a test for Moses. God knew full well what was going to transpire. And as I mentioned there in your notes, repentance is not indicating the Lord learns something new, but rather this awareness and choice to act accordingly may have been from eternity. And then the next line is important. Once again, we've got to think in a broader sense rather than a narrow sense of what's transpiring. In fact, if anything, Scripture clearly teaches, doesn't it, that God does not change his mind. And, and this is the problem I think Clark Pinnock and others have. What do you do with a text such as 1 Samuel? Turn to 1 Samuel. Look at this passage. Sorry, it's a sword drill this morning, waking you up, right? Hope If you don't have enough coffee, go grab some. 1 Samuel 15. Verse 29, the preeminent one of Israel does not go back on his word or change his mind. Based on that text, either we have a contradiction with Exodus 32 where God seems to repent or even with Abraham there in Genesis 22 or something else is going on, right? So 1 Samuel 15 verse 29 is clear. God does not change his mind. Another is Psalm 110, if you wanted to look at that text. God does not alter his, his mindset. And so I quote there in your notes from Does God Change His Mind by an Old Testament scholar, Robert Chisholm. This is very interesting. By the way, Bob Chisholm is coming in October to speak at our annual event. I'm really excited that he's coming. Chisholm makes this statement. He looks at the Hebrew constructions of God's announcements in the Old Testament. And here's something, something he finds. It clearly demonstrates if God has issued a decree, he will not change his mind. But in grammatical constructions which show that he's not making a decree, such as with Nineveh, 
that's an announcement. He said the majority of God's statements of, in the Hebrew scriptures are of intention. They are not decrees. And God can and often does deviate from such announcements. So as we look at God's sovereignty and God's statements, he, and this idea that he repents, we got to remember there's anthropomorphisms, descriptions of God in human ways to try to describe what's going on. Secondly, many of these so-called announcements from God are not decrees. God understands that Nineveh could repent. That's the whole point of sending Jonah. All right, and so we, we got to remember that. And then one more here, and then we'll open it for questions. Uh, clearly, Scripture teaches that the Lord knows all the future, future contingencies and all future free choices and actions of his creation. Isaiah 41 is a key text. If we had time, we'd look at that. Psalm 139, a text that we read earlier. God is... Uh, he will accomplish his will, won't he? Uh, Ephesians 1, right? <laughs> there, there's no altering that course. He accomplishes all things according to his purpose, and no creation or creature can thwart God's plan. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? No one can overturn the Lord's decrees. He is the one that is sovereign. And so the idea that God changes his mind or God repents what the openness camp would like to applaud doesn't bow well with what, where else in Scripture it teaches. So what do we do with those texts? And I think there's an easy way to explain that based on what we just laid out here. But questions on this? This is a big one. I had students who would argue, well, you know, God doesn't know the future because of texts like Genesis 22. And go, wait a minute, is there another way we can understand that? And I've given you, this is a gross overview, but we, it can't contradict these texts, which is that God's plan will not be thwarted. God knows all things. Yeah, Gary. I was going to say, isn't God trying to fit his perception of infinity into our perception, which is finite? I'd argue the other way around. <laughs> We're trying to explain a, an infinite God from a finite perspective. Uh, God doesn't need to fit into our, our uh, uh, yeah, but I, I know what you're saying. Yes. Right. The problem with the openness God concept is now we're, we're, we're equals with God in this chess game. Mm -mm. God already knows the future. And, and he's out of time and space. Well, if that's true, <laughs> if God is sovereign, first of all, secondly, and, and it's true that he does know all things and he, he's not dictated by what decisions we make, then how do you explain evil, Hafidetz? And again, we could take a whole course on God and evil, and we're going to do that in five minutes. But I, I want to give you a few things to run with and to think about. It, and obviously the question is, is if God is sovereign, then isn't God ultimately responsible for evil, right? You've heard this one, right? Uh, tell me you have. And just, you know, it's the whole question, even with 
when that happened so long ago. I, I saw articles in the newspaper that were just al alarming from even theologians who, who said, well, this is God's judgment, you know, on, human on the U.S. or, the, you know, on all of these statements trying to explain God and evil. Let me give you some things to run with. First of all, the response, Scripture never indicates that God is directly doing anything evil, nor, should I say, that he desire, delights in evil. Rather, what Scripture does highlight is that evil deeds result from willing actions of moral creatures and that these creatures are without excuse. Now, let me give you support for this, and let's look at this, how this unfolds, all right? Bear with me. I know it's early. The Lord can use evil actions for His purpose, can't He? The, the, one of my favorite texts is Genesis 50, which is even cited in your notes. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who sold him into slavery, actually, they thought they had done away with them altogether. He, Joseph says something very profound. You meant it for evil, human choice, but God meant it for good. So God even used their crud for his glory, right? Uh, we must remember, I, I, I wrote this in your notes, that the most evil act in history was for our salvation, the crucifixion of the Son. Peter Crift in, uh, states, this is in that box, a God who did not abolish suffering, worse, a God who abolished sin precisely by suffering, is a scandal to the modern mind. The Lord fully knows well about suffering, <laughs> He sent his son, he dwelt among us, and he died the most horrific death devised by man, uh, uh, Roman crucifixion, right? To inflict the greatest amount of pain for the longest period of time. But that's not just the suffering. He took our sin, which is far greater than the physical anguish, right? And, and so God is very familiar, and he can use evil for, the, for his own purpose. Here's a second thing to think about. The Lord brings evil and destruction. Yes, he uses it as a tool for judgment. And I quote Grudem, God is glorified through the demonstration of his justice. In fact, Carson wrote a little book, and I think I've re referred to it before, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He argues that if God is truly loving, there has to be a hell. Think about that one on another day, right? <clears throat> Here's a third. God is not the author of evil, and he cannot be blamed for it. Remember James, our study of James? Who's responsible for sin in your life? <laughs> you, not even Satan. You know, the devil didn't make you do it, according to James, under the inspiration of Scripture. Unbelievers will necessarily sin, but there is no compulsion forcing them to sin against their will. God didn't hold their arm back and say, you got to do this, right? Steal the candy <laughs> from the kid. Can't, do, can't blame God. Can't blame Satan. Can't blame your upbringing. You're, you're held responsible. <laughs> My wife, who's a counselor, as you know, she came home the other night. And she goes, I am so sick of blame shifting. <laughs> I just can't handle it. She said, I, I, I had a teenager in my office, and this teenager's so upset because, you know, mom and dad's marriage is on the rocks, and so she's blaming everybody else for her own sin. She said, no, you're responsible. No one else. Um, anyway, I'm starting to preach. God will ultimately judge evil. Evil's going to be dealt with. That's the beauty of Revelation, right? The book of, the last book of the, the Bible, the canon. And finally, and this is important, evil is never to be justified. 
Pine makes this very profound statement. Sin must always be inexplicable. inexplicable. It is never the sensible, the rational, or the appropriate thing. We should not attempt to explain what God has not revealed to us. Think about that for a minute. When the next person tells you, well, you know, I've got cancer. Well, you know, or, you know, this tragedy happened. Well, you know, that was God's judgment. Careful. Who are you to speak for God? And, and that's what Pine is trying to argue. In fact, he wrote that article based out of what happened in 9-11. Um, we got to be careful. We don't know what God is doing. And, and sin is irrational, right? Uh, how do you explain it? So, yes, God is sovereign, and yes, evil exists, and he will use evil for his end game, in the sense for his glory, but he will deal with evil as well. And once again, we come back to this, Burkhoff in his systematic theology, the problem of God's relationship to sin remains a mystery. If you're not hearing anything else from Hoffman today, you're going, wait a minute, I'm not getting any answers here. <laughs> because ultimately there is a mystery between God's sovereignty and human free will. The, the idea that sin exists and God is sovereign, yes, it is a tension. And as finite beings, to get our hands around what an infinite being is doing is ultimately, I would argue, impossible. But there are some explanations. Yeah, Larry. David and Isaiah. 45.7, which I'm sure you're familiar with, when it says the one or God forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Is there a difference here between, for example, creating calamity, which he works for our good, and creating evil? Yeah, the creating calamity, notice, I'm going to go back to my response. God is directly doing evil. Uh, I would argue indirectly he can be involved with it in the sense of allowing it to for the end game. Uh, he knows the end. And so um, I would argue he allows these things to occur. He's not the creator of evil, though. He can't be. The country does. <laughs> yep, you're right. Uh, John Calvin wrote, it's in the box in your notes, there under the intersect, gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. Ignorance of providence, that is of God, is the ultimate of all miseries, the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. What is, what is Calvin saying? I think three things here that we look at. Number one, no matter our situation, God is in charge, right? Knowing that next week, Gail, you're going to find out about the cancer. God is in charge. God, God knows, and uh, he is sovereign. Secondly, I hear a lot of Christians say, well, best of luck, or, you know, I was really lucky. Mm, scratch that from your vocabulary, all right? Uh, scratch that. The idea of chance or luck, there is no such thing. <laughs> the universe is not governed by how stars are aligned, karma, or, or fate, but rather it's the sovereign one who governs all things, isn't he? Uh, God is intimately involved 
And then third is the power of prayer. As a means to bring about, if we realize how significant it is that we humans have an opportunity to come to the Lord, that he hears our prayer, and that we can bring result should, should just drive us to our knees, shouldn't it? The power of prayer. So that is a gross overview of three areas. God's sovereignty, free will, and the issue of, of evil. And I apologize if it was a gross overview. Um, th- there is much here that is a tension. It is a mystery. I've asked Wolfgang, uh, we've got, Wolfgang, you've got some time, so I'll have you come up, but as you do, are there <laughs> any quick questions? Uh, this is a lot to process, I know, especially it's 7 in the morning. Yes? Go ahead, so, yes. I, I, what I would say to a family or respond to that to anyone, I am not God. And it, it pains him as much as it would me. It's absolutely horrific. The Holocaust is usually the one that's brought up by anyone, right? If God is sovereign, explain the Holocaust to me. I can't. I can't explain the two-year-old that was abducted and killed. And it is horrific. God is aware yeah, the, the grandfather that dropped the grandchild. Can you imagine uh, this past week? What do you do with that? I don't know. And that's what I'm, I think Pine is right. That's where we have to be careful to step outside and speak for God and what God is doing. I, I don't know. One thing I do know, God understands because he entered time and space and he suffered greatly for us. That I know. And I know this, that one day he will justify or he will rectify, he will vindicate the evil that has been perpetrated here. But I can't walk away from the Holocaust like Elie Wiesel and say God is dead. You know, the Holocaust exists, thus God does not exist. No. Because there's the Corey Timbooms of the world who said even in the, the, the greatest storm, God is speaking, God is there. And I rest in that. So, yeah, if you want a lot of answers today, you're not going to get them. (laughs) That's what I'm trying to argue is I I can't explain what God is doing. Could God have stopped it? Yes. And and Otto is going to share, where is he? Where are you, Otto? Yeah, Otto is going to share, you know, as I was working on this lesson, I, I called him. I said, Otto, you've got to share. I can't think of a better testimony that captures all of this in God's sovereign grace in the midst of great tragedy. So Otto, if you would, I'm going to take you to the next slide so they can all see that and then give you the floor. You tell me when you need a, a sign. That one? Yeah, this one. Okay. You're going to need a microphone. So that's, I'll bring it over to you. There you go. Okay. Stettin, this is where I was born. This is a, a part, whoever wins the war owns this piece of land, Poland or Germany. Right now it's Poland. Here I was born, here I was raised, Bockstagert, Lübeck, that's why I came from uh, east to west Germany, from there to Bremen, then New York. 
and TIM. Okay, and uh, yeah, we might as well show the next two, then we are done. Here it's me as a young man. <laughs> and um, the officer, he said, Officer von Morgen, we will be the officers for tomorrow. Sorry, we lost. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And uh, then, okay. I was born as a German. I'm American by choice. And I am here by God's grace. If uh, you said that, um, my God, my God, why has you abandoned me? No, he didn't abandon me. He has blessed me tremendously. And I thank God every day for it. So I was 10 years old. I marched for Adolf Hitler. I was uh, 13, 14 for the Communist Youth Group, FDJ. 16, they put me in a slave worker in the sugar beet factory. But to our hometown, the Russian army came, and these guys, they were full of revenge, and I don't blame them. The two tanks which came through our town, we were 13 years old, we got the um, Panzerfaust, or bazooka, I think you call it, and we nailed them. Two friends of mine, we nailed them, we locked them out, but we didn't kill the guys. So they came after us. My two friends, they got hit and never saw them again. And God, he helped me. And I run, and I run. I'm still running. Then the next tragedy was, things they took everything we had. The typhoid broke out. Typhoid fever, you can't get away from it. Many, many thousands of people died in our town. And um, uh, I had it too. It didn't heal. They took part of my stomach out. And I bought myself about 60, 70 years. Last year, with the incision was, I got cancer. But all these years, I did well. So God bless me. And I got the surgery done in an army hospital in a Catholic high school in a rough basement. And these guys did a good job. Okay. Uh, um, from the sugar beet factory, I escaped. I, I just went. I went to my mother and I said, I'm going west. And that was it. And in the morning, they came already after me. The police came in the front door. I jumped out of the back door, and that was a blessing. Because, can you imagine, I was 16 years old, leave home the first time for so long, and um, that you have to run fast. And otherwise, I don't know if I would have made it. You know, the emotions, the homesickness, and whatever came with it. Uh, um, so I went to West Germany. In West Germany, well, you have to go to, anyway, on the border between East and West, you have to, they um, caught us. There were three guys, they caught us, and uh, I went, um, they locked us up. One night they let me out, and they say, go home to your mother. And I was so mad, I could spit fire, man. <laughs> and um, so I tried again. 
the next morning I slept on a pail of hay, and I went, and I went through the swamp. And swamp, you know, it is like quicksand, and you go, when the gas bushels are, you go from step to step, and you talk about God is leading you, step by step. And he led me, and I was pretty much trenched. That was in November 15, 1949, I remember that. If I go down, if I get up, and I went up, and but the cities were all bombed out. And um, so they put me in a camp, and in that camp, that was horrible. The guys, they smoked uh, oak leaves just to get in a hospital to get a meal or a warm bed. And I got myself out, uh, don't ask me why or how. And um, uh, you can may uh, show this picture here. Here we are on a farm. Uh, a good part of my family, and uh, I'm the oldest one here, and uh, you can see our nice uh, white clothes that are the um, um, parachutes from the American bombers which got shut down, <laughs> so it made good uh, clothes for us. Uh, um, here I was in, uh, in Lübeck, outside, yeah, that's our farmhouse here. They took it away, okay, but uh, in a way, this was about eight years ago. And um, God just blessed me And here. How much time do we have left? Two minutes? Or? Oh, you're fine. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then, I cannot say I have enough time to talk about Hitler and so on, but I'd like to say one thing. The Christianity was in this way, and Christianity and many of the... Um, Theologians and so on, they, um, um, they didn't stand their ground. Mm. And um, so what he did is he put up what he called positive Christian, positive uh, Christianity. That was the new buzzword. And when there was any kind of a, uh, uh, event for the young people, if it was a graduation or so on, they sent a few uh, Nazi guys there, and they set the tone. They got good music, they got good talkers, good speakers, and uh, so they set the tone for us. And by the time the priest came up, or the pastor came up, the wind was gone out of it. You want to be with the group, with the Hitler Youth Group. They made you tick. They were disciplined, they had sports, they had programs. Uh, it, it was great. And if you are not with them, you know, you are against them and you get no school, no nothing there. All right, coming back. My grandfather, he was a um, lay Baptist preacher. And uh, at that time in Prussia, they couldn't afford a minister. So um, he uh, pitched in and he did well. And he said, the seeds in me, what God means to us. And um, as I was then in Lübeck, I got out of a camp. I got to start to learn. Um, I went to school. Then later on, I went to uh, Leverkusen, to the Bayer Company. And Bayer Company, Bayer Aspirin, they were great. They uh, had, um, they sent me to school. They trained me there. I worked part-time. I went for many years. Uh, so this is where, for some reason, I saw a chemical laboratory and I wanted to be a chemist. 
So I wanted to be a chemist. It was tough to, uh, if you have not much of anything, uh, in a way it was great, and I made it. And one day I said, um, I didn't get anywhere. So the German young man, you had the chance to go to Canada, Australia, or US. I happened to choose US. And uh, I tell you, God has blessed me tremendously. And I landed in New York. I had a sponsor in Michigan. I uh, worked in construction. I worked with concrete and you name it. And I got blisters <laughs> from the lab to uh, stone and mortar. One day I said, yeah, I have to get back in my job. I went to Chicago. In Chicago, uh, I worked first from, uh, also for Whirlpool. And we made experiments on detergent and... Uh, water and so on. And here I saw Morton Salt. Morton Salt, I just parked my car on the street, walked up and I said, do you have a job for me? And they, they said, yes, you got a job um, outside Chicago, 10 miles, uh, ten, uh, a good hour drive. Um, we just built a new research center and we need help. Mm. In two weeks, I got a job there and um, the rest is history. Mm. So as I was Working there, there was outside and nowhere, and my, uh, hey, I was a long range in the countryside. I need a wife. <laughs> and um, in Michigan, they said, if you get to Crystal Lake, there's the uh, Free Mission Church, E Free Church, and they will, um, it's great, you should go there. So I went, and I tell you, there was this one lady in the choir. We were just about 60, 70 people. And um, she always said that married look, so I don't fool around with married women. And um, so a friend of mine there, he said, um, listen, there's a good woman for you. And uh, I said, in a way, I joined the choir. <laughs> <laughs> And the rest is history. <laughs> we had three boys, one girl, and God has blessed them. And my goal was, if I ever get married, I want to have a Christian wife. Hmm. I have to get a Christian wife. And God has blessed me. There was the best family I could think of. Their family all were Christians. They, um, uh, it was just a great family, and God really was with us. Hmm. And, um, but I mentioned um, about me and the Christian, as I was um, in a camp there, back in Lübeck, there was nothing for me to do. So my grandfather said, you better come with us to church. And here I became a Christian. Hmm. And I tell you, how can you lose? Hmm. You can't. If God goes before you, I'm known for being Wolfgang number eight. And I had eight close calls in my life. And God built, built me out, God blessed me, God kept me, and uh, uh, I count my blessings. Last year, as I mentioned before, from the typhoid, I got this, um, uh, they call it cancer, well, on the stomach, I think God built me out. 
you know, I, I really count my blessings and uh, I like to think I'm okay. Wolfgang, <laughs> <laughs> thank uh, you. Okay, you say my time is off? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, that's just a glimpse of a very powerful testimony. You can you get a, pick, a glimpse of it. But Bruce Ware makes this comment, and, and I, th I thought of you when I read this. He, God, is king, Lord, sovereign, wise, good, and perfect in all his ways. The message of the Bible is that suffering has meaning. God has control over it and over all else. And so life can be lived by faith in the infinitely wise and powerful God. Right. Yes. And Wolfgang is a living testimony of God's grace. And I, I know we all could stand and say, this is what God has done for me. One word. My favorite verse, Joshua 1, 9. Hmm. You know, you have to have courage. Don't hesitate. Get at it. <laughs> Love it. The Wolfgang Auto translation. Yes. Almost like, thank you. Uh, thank you.